Good morning, happy Sabbath, and thank you to Brother Ruben again for the gift of music and for dedicating the gifts that you have to enhance God's Word and to glorify God. May God bless you all the time. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for a Sabbath day that will soon become the greatest and the final test upon not only religion, but the whole of mankind and the whole kingdom of God versus the kingdoms of this world, the law of God versus the laws of man. The promise is that if we are faithful, we will prevail, for the truth will be in pure victory in the days to come. So help us to look beyond the depressing situation today, the trials of the present, to the glorious triumphs of the future. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, this is a continuation of our expanding study on started with the law of God, now it's the kingdom of God. And uh, the title is based on the really the line, a theocracy today is apostasy. Not better Christianity, but before we get there, we're going to go through uh, this portion of our study that will lead us to eventually be discussing in the next sermon studies we have on this current situation in the United States, what happened several, many years ago here in the United States, and what we are facing as a certainty. We need to be prepared. So this study prepares us for that. All right, the verse that I'd like to begin with okay, is found in Luke 17, 20 to 22. Luke 17, 20 to 22. And I'm going to include, really based on, on what is written in the book, Desire of Ages, on the chapter, Not With Outward Show. We'll be picking up excerpts from that and moving forward on it. We will build on that. Um, Luke, I'm sorry, we'll go to Luke 9 first. Luke 9 verses 1 and 2 and then down to verse 23. Then I'm going to read from the King James Version, Luke 9 chapter 1, chapter 9 verse 1. Then he called his 12 disciples together and gave them power and authority over all devils and to cure diseases. Now, does that sound relevant right now? It should, okay? But in verse 2, it says, And he sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. All right? So let's now transfer to verse 23 of the same chapter. It says there, And he said to them all, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross of self-denial daily and follow me. Verse 24 says, For whosoever shall save his life shall lose it, but whosoever will lose his life for my sake, he shall, the same shall be saved. Now, we're talking kingdom language here. But it's quite opposite of what we were thinking and what has people have been mostly discussing about the kingdom of God on this earth. 
And it is my prayer and desire that all of us will learn from the Word of God what His kingdom is on this earth. Let me begin reading a portion here from the outward, no outward show chapter. Some of the Pharisees had come to Jesus demanding when the kingdom of God should come because more than three years had passed since John the Baptist gave the message that like a trumpet call had sounded throughout land. And what was that message? The kingdom of heaven is at hand, Matthew 3.12. And as yet these Pharisees, those were the religious leaders, uh, the thought leaders of, of the nation then, these Pharisees saw no indication in their estimation of the establishment of that kingdom. And many of those who rejected John, who prepared a way for Christ, and at every step had opposed Jesus, were insinuating that his mission had failed. It's important to take note of this. When we reject the messenger introducing the, the, the Savior, the servant, the Messiah, we actually are preparing ourselves to reject what the messenger was introducing to us. Jesus answered. What was Jesus' answer? He says, The kingdom of God cometh not with outward show, with the margin, says there. Neither shall they say, Lo here or lo there, for behold, the kingdom of God is within you. You see, the kingdom of God begins in the heart. Look not here nor there for manifestations of earthly power to mark the coming of that kingdom. And Jesus added, the days will come, turning to his disciples, he says this, when you shall desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you shall not see it, because it is not attended by worldly pomp, and you are in danger of failing to discern the glory of my mission. That's what Jesus was saying. You do not realize how great is your present privilege in having among you, though veiled in humanity, him who is the life and the light of man. That's from the book of John. But the days will come when you will look back with longing upon the opportunities you are now enjoying to walk and talk with the Son of God. But because of their selfishness and their earthliness, even the disciples of Jesus could not comprehend the spiritual glory which he had sought to reveal to them. It was not until after Christ's ascension to his Father and the outpouring of the promised Holy Spirit upon the true believers, basically, and really at that time, the 120 who were in the upper room, that the disciples fully appreciated the Savior's character and the Savior's mission. After they had received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, they began to realize 
that they had been in the very presence of the Lord of glory. As the sayings of Christ were brought back to the remembrance by the work of the Holy Spirit, their minds were opened. To comprehend the prophecies and to understand the miracles which he had wrought, the wonders of his life, his life, passed before them and they were as men awakened from a dream. They realized that indeed, in John 1.14, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. What glory is that? He says, full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth, John 1.14. Christ had actually come from God to a sinful world to save the fallen sons and daughters of Adam, the first Adam. The disciples now seemed to themselves of Oh, of much less importance than before they had realized this. They never wearied of rehearsing the words of Christ and his works, his lessons, which they had but dimly understood now, came to them like a fresh revelation. The scriptures became to them as a new book. And as we study this more on the topic, that is also my desire and hope that that is your desire as well. You see, the kingdom of God does not come with outward show. Or the gospel of the grace of God with its spirit of self-denial, self-abnegation, which is exactly the opposite of self-promotion and self-glory, can never be in harmony with the spirit of the world. These two principles are antagonistic, never in harmony. Because as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural man receiveth not the spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. So the carnal mind cannot discern this. The mind must be rendered spiritual by the transformation that takes place with true conversion, work of the Holy Spirit. But here it is. But today in the world, specifically in the religious world, and we will be discussing this and covering this in detail later on, more specifically, beginning in the United States of America, since the late 1800s and into the early 1900s, we will study this later on, there are multitudes who, as they believe, are working for the establishment of the kingdom of Christ as an earthly and temporal dominion. They desire to make our Lord the ruler of the kingdoms of this world, the ruler in the courts, justice, and in the camps, its, its halls, its palaces and marketplaces, they expect him to rule through legal enactments enforced by human authority. And since Christ is not now here in person, they themselves 
think they will undertake to act in his stead to execute the laws of his kingdom. It was the establishment of such a kingdom that the Jews desired in the days of Christ, including the disciples. Actually, they would have received Jesus had he been willing to establish a temporal dominion to enforce what they regarded as the laws of God. Well, look at that. Today, we talk about the anti-abortion, the pro-life versus the women's rights, the anti-LGBTQ, uh, etc. Well, that is what they wanted to enforce in those days, and you find its counterparts today, and to make them expositors of his will and the agents of his authority. But what did Jesus say? My kingdom is not of this world. John 18.36 He would not accept an earthly throne. You see, Jesus attempted no civil reforms. Jesus attempted no civil reforms. Jesus was not an activist in the sense of this word that has been used and is still is, is understood and is currently used and understood today. He was much less a so-called revolutionary or a rebel with a cause, although he was falsely accused of fomenting an insurrection against the Roman government by the religious or the Jewish leaders of his time. And unfortunately, the people believed in the spiritual guardians of the nation. So, but let's be clear here, okay? World history, secular scholars, as well as church literature and church historians provide all the fearsome details of the iron rule and moral corruption of the Roman Empire, its despotic Caesars and emperors, prominent of which many of you know this, know them by name, Domitian, and particularly Nero, all sustaining, in fact, the very prophecies in Daniel and Revelation regarding, regarding the role of Rome, the Roman Empire and the emperors, followed by the papal Rome, and then on to the political and religious conditions prevailing in the time of Christ himself. Indeed, we read the government under which Jesus lived was corrupt. Sounds familiar? And oppressive. On every hand, there were crying abuses, extortion, intolerance, and grinding cruelty. That's the Roman Empire brand. Hence, the Roman Empire was symbolized as a nondescript beast, as an animal symbol and iron as a metal symbol. But yet, the Savior attempted absolutely no civil reforms. He attacked no national abuses. He neither condemned the national enemies. So, let's take note now with that statement. If Christ were here in America today, in his literal physical person, as he was in Palestine about 2,000 years ago, Jesus would not condemn 
the government with all their inconsistencies and, and we know what's going on. He would neither condone nor endorse the perceived national enemies of America. And I would cite that because it's all over the news. We, it's North Korea, it's China, it's Iran, it's Russia, it's the ISIS, it's the Al-Shabaab. Any of those designated as terrorists, by the way, and lately even the revived KKK, the QAnon conspiracies, the white supremacists, the Antifa, the Boogaloo Boys and all that, that list is growing on the conspiracy list. What Jesus actually roundly condemned at the right time and at the right place and in the right spirit as recorded in the Gospels as and as well as parts of the epistles of the New Testament, you can read especially the whole chapter of Matthew 23. There's 1 to 39. There are 39 verses. What he roundly condemned, not all the time, but at the appointed time, was the blatant yet openly accepted hypocrisy and double standards practiced by the religious leaders of the nation and the national bigotry, prejudice, and intolerance of the nation itself towards all others not of their faith and belief because they were claimed to be the chosen people of God. In fact, John the Beloved, and I'm going to read this with you, opened up his big epistle. I call that big epistle with these following immortal words. Because these immortal words are enlightening and uplifting and edifying on one hand and damning as well to those who are guilty. So we read, John chapter 1, verses 1 to 5, and then 9 to 14. Verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 2 says the same, or the Word was in the beginning with God. Verse 3 says, All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Verse 4 says, In Him was life, and the life was the light. Of men. Verse 5 says, And the light shineth in the darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. Verse 9 says, That was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into this world. Verse 10, He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. Verse 11, This is where we are focusing on. He came to his own, his own people, his own nation, and his own received him not. But here's the beautiful thing about this sad commentary, sad revelation of what happened. Verse 12 says, But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Verse 13, who are they? These are the people of the members of God's kingdom. It is explained here. It says, these are those who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh. That is human 
royal lines, genealogy, or human powers, prowess, wealth, or political or religious superiority, or dominance. He says that they're not born, not of blood, they are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh. But look at this. He says they are born again. And in verse 14, wonderful. That word that was in the beginning was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So we continue reading what we have here on the book, Desire of Ages. Jesus did not interfere with the authority or the administration of those in power. He did not. He who was our example kept aloof from earthly governments. And you ask the question, why? Why? Not because he was indifferent to the woes of men, the sufferings of men, but because, and I want you to remember this, I need to remember this as well, and everybody should, but because the remedy, the remedy did not lie in merely human and external measures. In order to be efficient, that cure must reach man first individually and must regenerate the heart individually. We are going to discuss this, especially when we come into the uh, topic of the individuality of man where religious liberty is concerned. Now, what is that heart? The regeneration of the heart, the renewal of the heart. That regenerated or renewed heart and mind under the new covenant where no longer merely is written in two tables of stone as in outward appearance and profession and compliance, but now that is the law of God written in the heart and in the mind of the truly contrite and repentant sinner who has undergone and continues to go through a genuine rebirth that began by water and continues with the Spirit. So the word truly born again means the previous old man with a carnal mind is renewed into a spiritual mind, and his once stony, stubborn, hard-hearted heart is renewed into that spiritual heart of flesh becomes meek and humble, gentle and peaceable, easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits without partiality, without hypocrisy. We read that in James 3, verse 17. So let me share with you these verses because they're so important. That shows us about Jesus talking about his new kingdom on earth. Ezekiel begins this where he says in Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27, then I will sprinkle, that's God says, I will sprinkle clean water upon you. You shall be clean from all your filthiness and from all your idols, and I will cleanse you. Verse 26 says, a new heart also will I give you and a new spirit will I put within you and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh and I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you shall keep my judgments and do them. 
Well, let's go forward to the New Testament. See the same thing repeated here by Paul, who is the author of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 10 and 13. For this is the covenant. Now we're talking covenant now of God's kingdom. That I will make with the house of Israel after those days. You see how important it is? It is the New Testament. After those days of the Old Testament, saith the Lord, I will put my laws into their mind, write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. Verse 13 says, In that he saith a new covenant, the New Testament there, yeah. he hath made, he hath made the first covenant old, now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. That's in the past. In Hebrews 10, 16, 17, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and in their minds, and I will write them, and their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. And so it is rendered clear and beyond any question that it is not by the decisions of courts or councils or legislative assemblies, not by the patronage of worldly great men, is the kingdom of Christ established, but by the implanting of Christ's nature in humanity through the work of the Holy Spirit. Remember what we just read earlier from John 1, 12 and 13. For as many as received him, to them gave he power to become sons of God, even to them who believe in his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. I hope we understood what we just read. And once more, we go back to what says the Sire of Ages. Here is the only power that can work the uplifting of mankind. So if you're looking for solutions to this world, here it is. And the human agency for the accomplishment of this work is the teaching and the practicing of the Word of God. By the way, this is what is meant when Jesus said in John chapter 6, to eat his flesh and to drink his blood. The teaching and the practicing of the Word of God. See, when the Apostle Paul began his ministry in Corinth, that populous, wealthy, and yet wicked city, polluted by the nameless vices of heathenism, Paul said, I determined not to know anything among you, speaking to the people in Corinth, except Jesus and him crucified. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 2. And so writing afterward to some of those who had been once corrupted by the foulest sins of that place, he could then say to those, but you were washed, you were sanctified, but you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. I thank my God always on your behalf for the grace of God which is given you by Jesus Christ. That was God's kingdom, Christ's kingdom. And so we read now as in Christ's day. Here's the lesson we need to learn. The work of God's kingdom lies not with those who are clamoring 
for recognition and support by earthly rulers and human laws, but with those who are declaring to the people in his name those spiritual truths that will work in the receivers the experience that Paul went through when he said, I am crucified with Christ. That the law is crucified, but I, that self, is crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. What kind of life is that? He says, that is not I, but Christ's life living in me, Galatians 2.20. Then what will happen? Then they will labor as Paul did for the benefit of men, not for themselves, in self-aggrandizement or self-promotion, or for any specific political party, not for any religion or church or denomination, except, I would say this, except for that all-time religion of the Bible and its everlasting gospel, particularly not for any secret societies with their anti-Christian hidden agenda of reuniting the churchcraft and statecraft, nor for any other agenda other than what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.20. What did Paul say? Now we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead that be reconciled to God. Now we ask the question, what is a theocracy? Because our study sermon today talks about the theocracy of the old is the kingdom of God in the new. And so I'm reading from an extract from the appendix of that book referring to note 11, the first king of Israel. A theocracy is a government which derives its power immediately from God, not vox populi, remember that? Or the voice of the people is the voice of God not by a majority. The government of Israel was the one and only true theocracy that was really a government of God. Now we'll see the movement here. We have to trace it so we can understand where we are today and what we are facing. Okay? This is from the Patriarchs and Prophets 603-604. The government of Israel was administered in the name and by the authority of God, the work of Moses, the 70 elders of the rulers and the judges was simply to enforce the laws of, that God had given. They had no authority to legislate for the nation. This was and continued to be the condition of Israel's existence as a nation. And from age to age, inspired by God, men who were inspired by God were sent to instruct the people and to direct in the enforcement of God's laws. But the Lord Jesus, he foresaw that Israel would desire a king. But he did not consent to a change in the principles upon which the state was founded because the king was to be the vicegerent of the Most High, and God was to be recognized as the head of that nation, and his law, the Decalogue, was to be enforced as the supreme law of the land. And so when Israel 
When the Israelites first settled into the promised land in Canaan, they, at the, at the beginning, acknowledged the principles of the theocracy. And the nation, therefore, preserved, was preserved and prospered under the rule of Joshua. But increase in population, intercourse with the other nations in, the, in heathen Canaan, brought a change. Now listen to this. Let's read it again. Increase in population and intercourse with other nations was what brought a change. The people adopted many of the customs of their heathen neighbors, pagans, and thus sacrificed to a very great degree their own peculiar holy character as a nation, both individually and as a nation. And so, over time, gradually, they lost their reverence for God. They ceased to prize the honor of being His chosen people, attracted by the pomp and display of the heathen monarchs. They tired of their own simplicity. Soon, jealousy and envy sprang up between the tribes. Internal dissensions made them weak. Well, divided we stand, united we stand, divided we fall. This is what's happening. They were continually exposed to the invasion of their heathen enemies. And the people were coming to believe that in order to maintain their standing among the nations, not before God, but among the nations, the tribes must be united a strong under a strong central government. You see what is we're we're now beginning to see this development, okay? That leads us to where we are today and what we're facing in the very near future. And so as Israel departed from obedience to God's laws, both moral and ceremonial and physical as well as literal, they desired to be freed from the rule of their divine sovereign. You can't have one and the other. Either you serve God or you do not serve him. You serve the enemy. That's the exact opposite and counterfeit principle of freedom and liberty. And so what happens? And thus the demand for a monarchy. Remember talking about theocracy. This is how a demand for a monarchy came about. Soon it became widespread throughout Israel. Now let's look at the leader. Because God spoke to Samuel. God was the sovereign of Israel directly, but working through Samuel, the prophet. Since the days of Joshua, the government of ancient Israel had never been conducted with so great wisdom and success as under the prophet Samuel's administration. Divinely invested with threefold, I'll emphasize this, with the threefold office of judge, prophet, and priest. He had labored with untiring and disinterested, disinterest, that's devoid of any personal agenda, that disinterested zeal for the welfare of the people. And the nation prospered under his wise control. Order had been restored, godliness was promoted, the spirit of discontent was checked, for a time, but with the advancing years, 
the prophet was forced to share with others the cares of government under that theocracy. And so he appointed his two sons, think about nepotism here, to act as his assistants. He was, this is the early form of nepotism, really. We'll see. But while Samuel continued the duties of his offices, his office, threefold office in Rama, his two sons, those young men, were stationed at Beersheba to administer justice among the people near the southern border of the land. It was with the full assent of the nation that Samuel had appointed his sons to office. Right? So they approved of that. So it was not self-serving nepotism, but they did not prove, his two sons did not prove to be worthy of their father's choice. The Lord had, through Moses, given specific and special directions to his people that any and all the rulers of Israel should judge righteously. That is according to the law of God. Only to deal justly with the widow, the fatherless, and receive no bribes. But the sons of Samuel, we're told in the Bible, turned aside after lucre or money, and they took bribes and perverted judgment. The sons of the prophet had not heeded the precepts, which he had sought to impress upon their minds. They had not copied the pure, unselfish life of their father. The warning given to Eli, the previous prophet under whom Samuel was personally trained, had not exerted the influence upon the mind of Samuel that it should have done. He had, and it was the fault of Samuel, he had to some extent been too, too indulgent with his sons. And the result was apparent in their character and in their lives after. The injustice of these two judges, sons of Samuel, caused much dissatisfaction. And what happened? A pretext was thus furnished for urging the change that had been secretly desired. You must read 1 Samuel chapters 8 to 12. It's only there. All the elders of Israel gathered themselves together and came to Samuel unto Ramah and said unto him, Behold, thou art old. And your sons are not walking in your ways. Now make unto us a king to judge us like all the other nations. The cases of abuse among the people had not been referred to Samuel. Had the evil course of his son been made known to him, he would have removed them without delay. But this was not what the petitioners desired. Samuel saw that the real motive was discontent and pride, and their demand was the result of a deliberate and a predetermined purpose. And I'm going to stop right there for this section, because I want you and I to contemplate on what we just heard and read. Because this is the foundation of what develops here too. From this point on, going forward, is what we are dealing with, we have been dealing with, and we will be dealing with in, the, in this nation, in the nations of this world, towards the end of time. May God bless us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for giving us this opportunity to trace 
from cause to effect. To go through the history as written in the Word of God to reveal what happened then as a warning for what will happen and will certainly happen unless we learn our lessons well. Or as it's, it has been said, if we don't learn from history, we will be condemned by it. So help us, Lord, today, this blessed Sabbath day, that we will learn that God is a God of righteousness and justice, and that His kingdom is forever and ever, and that His laws are what regulates this kingdom forever. May you write that law into our hearts and minds. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.